Matthew chapter 12. Oh, I'm in Matthew. I need Mark. I don't care what Matthew has to say right now. All right. Verse number 38. Let's read the text at large. Then we're, we're going to dive in. Okay. And he said unto them in his doctrine, beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing. And they love salutations in the marketplaces. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. It was offering time. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. They speaking of the rich people. For all they did cast in of their abundance or their surplus, their leftovers. But she of her want, her poverty, did cast in all that she had, even all her living. The title of the message today is this, When Jesus Watches Our Worship. Let me ask you a series of questions. If, if Jesus came and sat beside you today or stood beside you today as you worshipped him through singing, like we just did, what would he see? If he watched you as you worshiped him through serving others, like many of our folks are outside of this building, keeping track of our kids right now, that's worship. What would he see? If he watched as you worshiped him through prayer, what would he see? If he watches you in just a few minutes at the end of the service as you worship him through your giving, what will he see? This isn't really a far-fetched imaginary question because Jesus does watch our worship. And our worship isn't just assembling together. That's called church. Worship is what we do as Christians. It's a way of life, praying, singing, giving, serving, fellowshipping, bearing each other's burdens. There's so many forms and demonstrations of worship. Jesus sees it all because he cares about it all very deeply. And that's what he's doing in our text. He walks into their temple and he observes their worship and he watches the worships of two people, the scribes. Then he watches the worship of a poor widow woman. And he sees two very different things. He condemns the scribes for their worship and then he takes time to commend the widow woman for hers. Now, if you and I were in the temple that day, watching their worship, not knowing what we know now because I just read it, we would probably do this. We would commend the scribes and condemn the widow. We look at their worship and we'd see just the opposite of what Jesus saw because we tend to judge the quality of one's worship by what we can see on the outside. The scribes had it all together. 
All their the theological I's were dotted. All their religious T's were crossed. The way they looked was just right. The way they prayed was so eloquent. The amount they gave was so impressive. They, to us, would appear to be the better worshipers as compared to the widow woman. She wasn't impressive in the way she dressed. She didn't steal any attention when she walked into the room. She didn't bring a huge amount of money to give into the offering. She didn't stop in the middle of the temple and pray out loud or quote scripture out loud. She didn't sit in the prominent seats. Yet Jesus commended her worship. While condemning the scribes' worship, my question is why? What made the difference? How could Jesus do that? Here's why. Because Jesus sees what we can't see. Jesus watches our worship, and when he does, he sees our hearts. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says this, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. I've often said, I, I wish I had x-ray vision. I've been a pastor for a little over a year, and I'm glad I don't. I want to trust that your smile is sincere. I want to trust that you mean what you're doing. I'm afraid that if I had x-ray vision and you had x-ray vision into my heart, we might see what God really sees. So let me ask you then this morning, if the Lord sees beyond the surface of your worship to the heart of your worship, and he does, then what does he see today in you? Why are you here? When he looks through the outward display of your worship into the very heart of your worship, would he commend it today? Clap. Say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or would he judge it? Would he condemn it? Would he say of you, you shall receive the greater damnation? Because your worship reflects that of the religious hypocrites. Mark starts not where I read. He actually starts with a few verses before that that we didn't touch on last Sunday. Because he shows us why Jesus Christ is the right person to judge our worship. He, he tells us that Jesus is Lord. And because he's Lord, he sits on the throne. And because he sits on the throne, he has the authority to judge your worship. I don't have that authority. And you don't have that authority. Jesus alone has that authority. Look at verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David there, therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? Study with me for a moment. The problem with the scribes was that they only believed Jesus to be like David. Who, who was David? Well, we're, gonna, we're studying the life of David on Sunday nights. He was a warrior king who led Israel politically. The scribes believed that Jesus had come like David to lead a political revolt against the Roman government. They wrestled with the idea of him actually being more than a man. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. They simply believed he was a descendant of David and was like David. A good man, 
but only a man. Therefore, they were deeply uh, offended and taken back when Jesus walked into their temple and began to rearrange their worship. What authority, they said, you have to do this. Jesus knew they struggled with his authority. So he reached back into the book of Psalms, a book that David wrote to prove his authority. He pointed them back to where David himself called Jesus Lord. Back to Psalms 110 verse 1 where David acknowledged that Jesus as Lord is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. That throne is speaking of a place of authority. And then Jesus asked the scribes, if David himself in the scripture, which you know scribes, called me Lord, am I really just his son? In other words, yes, I am the son of David. I'm come from his family line, but I am also the son of God. I'm David's son indeed, but hear me, scribes, I am also David's Lord. He said so himself. See, the idea Jesus was getting at is that as the son of God, he has all authority. He has, he is the perfect person to not only watch your worship, but to judge your worship. He's the only one that can see your worship for what it really is. He's the only one who can truly commend it or condemn it. How do we know if our worship is a worship he commends or condemns? Well, we're either like the scribes or we're like the widow woman. Let's study both. Jesus condemned the scribes because their worship was selfish. He condemns selfish worship. The very first word of verse 38 is the word beware in Jesus's words anyway. Beware of the scribes. In other words, caution, look out. Do not worship like these guys worship. So then how did they worship to see if we're worshiping in that way? Well, they made it all about them. It was all about self-exaltation. Some of the phrases that Jesus used to describe their worship. They walked into the temple with long robes. I didn't see any long robes today. But this was was custom for these scribes. They wore these prayer shawls with these showy tassels connected to them. When they walked into the temple, everybody looked and that was the point. They loved attention. Jesus said they loved salutations in the marketplace. So they're out shopping at Walmart. And when they walk in the same aisle as you, they want you to stand up and salute. They want everybody in town, when they walk into the room, to acknowledge their status by calling them rabbi, or by calling them master, or by calling them father. Don't ever call me father. Amen. They wanted the chief seats in the synagogue and the uppermost rooms at the feast. No back row seats for these boys. Doesn't matter if they're going to a mill at a deacon's house or they were going to church. They wanted the best seats. In fact, when they came to the temple or the synagogue, they would sit at the seats up front and they would face those that they thought were beneath them. It wasn't just self-exaltation though. It was also about self-gain to them. Because Jesus said they devoured widows' houses. In other words, they took advantage of the vulnerable. This is sickening to me. Widows were the most helpless members of society in this day. And yet these scribes consumed what limited resources they had. 
And to make matters worse, the reason why it just gets to my gut is because then they would use their fancy, long, drawn out prayers in the temple to cover up their greed. It's like they had no conscience. They could pray in public ways so as to be admired, but then steal from widows behind closed doors. That's wrong. Here's the point. These guys worship. It was selfish. It was all about them. And if we're not careful, our worship can become something similar to theirs. Oh, I know you're thinking instantly, no way. I would never have the audacity to be vain or that greedy or that self-exalting or that crooked. I'm not going to steal from a widow and I'm not going to wear a prayer shawl. And maybe you're right. Maybe our selfish worship doesn't show up like theirs did, but we still have our own version today. I made a list to help us all see the indicators of modern day selfish worship in our own lives. I kind of took my cues for this list from the great Jeff Foxworthy. (laughs) Who's famous for saying, you know, you're a redneck if. Well, here's my version of that statement for today's message. You know, you're a selfish worshiper if. Number one, you are disappointed when your worship isn't noticed by others. You know you're a selfish worshiper if you come to worship and give more attention to how you are perceived than who God is and what he is like. You know you're a selfish worshiper if you don't look for ways to encourage other people. Or if you only ask God for things instead of thanking him for what he's already giving you. You know you're a selfish worshiper if you only participate when it benefits you. Or you only worship when it's convenient for you. Or you worship in order to avoid criticism or skepticism from the pastor or other church members. You're a selfish worshiper if you have to consistently talk yourself into worshiping. Or if you can't keep from complaining or criticizing the way other people worship. Or if the only time you truly worship is when you come to church. If your worship is only public, it's selfish. The last one on the list is this. You're a selfish worshiper if you think you got 100% on this quiz. (laughs) We've all got a thread of selfishness running through us. We've all got a little scribe in us. And if we aren't constantly evaluating our worship, Evaluating our giving and our singing and our praying and our serving and our preaching and our fellowship, then we will eventually become no better than the scribes that Jesus condemned. The most sober warning of the entire text is the very end of verse 40 when he says, These shall receive the greater damnation. In other words, this kind of worship will eventually be judged and it will be judged severely. You can fake everyone else out, but you can't fake God out. Daniel Aiken said this, Indeed, God will judge with special severity hypocritical religious leaders who strut like peacocks, abuse the less fortunate, and traffic in false worship that is all show with no substance. Such wickedness in motive and action makes plain that they never embrace the greatest servant of all, the greater son of David, Jesus the Christ. Ultimately, being a fake, selfish worshiper sends a person straight to hell. 
That's how seriously God takes religious hypocrisy. And so should we. Would you evaluate every area of your worship today? Every area. And see if there's even a hint of selfishness in it. If so, like I've had to do this week, I would urge you to repent. That's the negative side of the text. The negative example. Selfish worship that Jesus condemns. But then Mark ends on a positive note with a positive example. Jesus is going to go into the temple and he's going to watch the worship of a, of a widow woman. And he's going to commend her. And here's why. Because her worship was sacrificial worship. Jesus condemns selfish worship. And don't take that lightly, friend. Don't take it lightly. But he also commends sacrificial worship. Jesus walks into church, walks into the temple. I shouldn't call it church. He took a seat and watched the worship through giving in the temple. They had all these receptacles where they came in and they're trumpet shaped and they would drop their coins, their currency, their offering in these receptacles. And, and, and he saw two givers. He saw the rich and he saw the poor. He said the rich cast in much. That's what he saw. Their giving would have been primarily in coins. So the more you gave, the louder you were as the coins hit the bottom of the offering plate. Thus, the more attention you received. The poor widow woman, on the other hand, gave two mites. To give you an idea of the value of these mites, the denarius coin in that day was worth one day's wage. If they got paid by the day, they, were get, they got paid by a denarius coin. Her two mites were only worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius together. It's safe to say that when she put her offering in the plate, it didn't make any noise. It didn't bring her any attention. In fact, to the rich, her offering amounted to nothing. Yet Jesus brought the disciples together. We read it and he said this, that widow gave more than all the rich put together. Now, either Jesus is using the same kind of math they use in Washington, D.C., which is no math at all. Or he knows something about the giver that we don't know. I conclude he knows math. And he also knows something about the giver we don't know. He came to this conclusion of the widow giving more because he, as Lord, had the ability to know the financial standing, the bank account of both the rich and the widow. Because as Lord, he sees beyond what we see. He knew that when the rich gave much, they still had a lot left over. He knew that because they gave out of their surplus, their abundance, that, that after they gave in the offering and made such a big splash in public, they still had a pretty padded bank account. But he also knew that when the widow woman gave her two mites, she didn't have anything left. He knew that she gave all that she had. He knew that her two mites weren't the result of her greediness or her stinginess. He knew that she didn't have a denarius hidden under her mattress at home. He knew that when she dropped in the two coins, it was in her entire living. Therefore, he said she gave more. And here's why. Because she sacrificed more. You see, when Jesus counts the offering, he doesn't just count what we give. He counts what we have left. He doesn't just consider the portion of our offering. He considers the proportion of our offering. 
to Jesus, it's not about the amount of money we give necessarily. It's more about the amount of sacrifice we make. It makes sense to me why, why Jesus delighted so much in the widow's two mites because her worship was a fulfillment of the greatest commandment which we, we preached about last week. Where Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what the widow woman was doing here. She was fulfilling the greatest commandment. I believe the reason why Jesus said, disciples, get over here. There's a teaching lesson that, that we can't miss here. Is because he saw an opportunity to show them an object lesson of what true sacrifice looks like. And if you've been with me all through the study of Mark, you understand the one concept the disciples were unwilling to fathom was the concept of sacrifice. They wanted to get power and position and prestige with Jesus as he, as he became the, the emperor as he, as, he, as he led them in a revolt against the Roman government, they wanted to be on his right hand and on his left hand. But when Jesus said, no, 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 following me does not mean government position. Following me, it simply means denying yourself. It means taking up your cross. It means forsaking all. It means dying to yourself every single day, saying, I surrender all. It means saying this, the world behind me, the cross before me. It means saying this, though none go with me, still I will follow. It means saying this, I have decided to follow Jesus. And when he saw this widow woman, he said, disciples, get over here. I can't miss this. And you can't miss this. This is what I've been trying to drill into you. In a few days, I'm going to be on a cross. And this Christian life, this this gospel that will change the world, my kingdom and its spread. Listen, it is up to you. And it's going to be hard. You can't give to me out of your surplus. The world won't be changed if you're just selfish and comfortable. The world will only be changed when you're stretched and you're strained and you're hurting. And you're giving things up and that heavy splintery cross is digging into the flesh of your back. That's the only way the gospel goes forward. I want to do the same quiz I did earlier with a positive bent to it. You know you're a sacrificial worshiper. If. If you find yourself strained at times in such a way that requires God's grace to sustain you. I'll put it on the bottom shelf. If you're tired at the end of a Sunday. I'm going to ad lib just a little bit. If you can go to church and go home. And feel like you just went out to eat and went back. You ain't sacrificial. Pardon the lack of grammar there. If churches let me check this box off today and you get more worn out by mowing the lawn when you go home. There's not enough emotion, not enough dedication, not enough commitment, not enough generosity that is being poured out of your life. Oh, church is just supposed to be one of those places where we just go and we find ourselves. Church is supposed to be one of those places where, where we go one way, we feel down in the dumps, and we walk away like we're, we're an angel floating on a cloud playing a harp. 
And there is something about corporate worship that ought to make you feel good. But if there's no expenditure, no strain, no giving, no sacrifice, do we really please God? Back to the list. You know you're a sacrificial worshiper if you come to worship with a giving toward others posture instead of a getting from others posture. Hello, you aren't at church to find, a, to find someone to marry. That's not why you come here. We have good Christians that are singles and you might find one of them. You ought to enroll in the greeting ministry. You don't come to church because it's your week to sing. You don't come to work because Alexa texts you and said, I need you in the nursery today. And that's the only reason you're here. You don't come to church to catch up with your friends. That's not the heart of why we're here. We come to give. You know, you're a sacrificial worshiper if you attend church, even when it's inconvenient. Or if you pray when you don't feel like it. Or if your giving makes it hard to do some things you'd like to do. Or how about this one? You know you're a sacrificial worshiper if you don't get offended easily. Oh, the world could hear that again. Or if you forgive quickly. Or when you are happy, truly happy when others get recognition. You're sacrificial when you disagree but still worship with a glad spirit. Get a hold of that one. You're a sacrificial worshiper if you still sing even when the song isn't your preference. Huh. I don't like them old songs. I get as well with my soul. Suck it up, buttercup. That's a good one. Well, I don't like the new song. I got it greater. I got it stronger. And everybody's going like this. Those are stupid. Well, get over it. I don't like that instrument. Get over it. It's an all moral piece of equipment being played by a sinner for the glory of God. Get over it. Sacrifice your preference for crying out loud. I just talked about someone like this. There's a, Tyler, how, how do you sing new songs and old songs? Like I can't please anybody in my church. And I said, you know what, you know what doing singing new songs and old songs with, with all kinds of instruments and all, you know what that helps our church do? Die to ourselves. It helps our church to understand that we reach more than one generation. It helps our church to understand that we reach more than one ethnicity. It helps our church to understand that we reach people from various backgrounds that could care less about a hymn or a new song. They just want to sing about Jesus Christ that changed their life. All right, I got some claps. That's more than a I need more than a golf clap. I'm going to preach my guts out up here. I'm doing more than making a long putt. Where am I at in my list? If you know you're a sacrificial worshiper, if you're more concerned about what others are gaining than what you are losing. And then this one, your worship is done from a place of gratitude for Christ's sacrifice for you. I chose that last one because we're talking about motive here. And that's where sacrificial worship starts. It starts with Jesus. Please hear me. What this widow woman did in giving her all was what Jesus was about to do in a couple of days. Yeah. 
He would give his life on a cross. He would sacrifice everything in order to pay for our sin. And even the Apostle Paul uses like, like terms of currency to describe what that day meant for us who would believe in him. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's the gospel. Jesus became poor physically so that we could become rich spiritually. Jesus became sin on a cross so that we could be made righteous and go to heaven. If you're struggling to worship sacrificially today or I seem way over the top for your personal taste, I want to encourage you, take a good look at how Jesus sacrificed everything for you. Nothing that he asked from us in return will ever be too much. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. If he paid for most, then I would owe him most. If he paid for some, then I would owe him some. If he paid for a little of my sin, I would owe him a little of my worship. But he paid for it all. All my past sin, all my present sin, and this just mind-blowing to me. He died for every one of my future sins. Every way in which I would fail him and disappoint him and discourage him. He said, it's okay. I'm going to the cross for all of those things. Do you see why this was such a special moment to him? While the widow woman was so praised by him? Do you see this? It's because it reflected the way he loved the world. Hmm. Did you know that song, Jesus Paid It All, was written in a choir law? I read about that this week. A long-winded preacher was going on and on and on and on. Not like the one today. <laughs> a girl was up in the choir loft, a soprano singer. And she looked at a cross in the back of the room because she couldn't keep focused on the message. And she took out a piece of paper. And looking at that cross, she literally wrote one of the greatest hymns to ever find its way into our church. Here's what's great about our sacrificial worship, even as compared to the widow's sacrificial worship. Don't miss this. She was given before the cross. You hearing me? We're being asked to give after the cross. Her sacrificial spirit led her to pay toward a temple system that would be destroyed years later. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But now we get to give ourselves to an eternal kingdom that will never fall. The temple merely mediated the presence of God. You had to go there. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We are the temple of God if we're saved. Here's the point. We have an even greater motivation than the, woman, the, the widow woman had to be sacrificial instead of selfish. Thus, there might be greater damnation for those of us who don't. There's, there's no excuse. 
When Jesus watches our worship, what does he see? I'm not asking what you see. I'm not asking what others see because we're limited in our view. I'm asking what the Lord of all sees because he's the only one that can see rightly and judge rightly your worship. Would he condemn it today for being selfish? Or would he commend it today for being sacrificial? Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?